Welcome to Level Up with Sherelle and Danny. We're here to help you take your health, fitness, and mindset to the next level. It's time to level up. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Level Up with Sherelle and Danny. Today, we had an in depth conversation with Victoria Falker. She is a practitioner, consultant, author, and educator. Yeah, so Victoria specializes in women's health, hormones, and steroid use in the female athlete, which also includes hormonal contraception. Victoria also has an incredible story behind her drive and passion for research and education, which really shines through in this episode. It's a long episode and it embodies two parts in this conversation. So the first part includes menstruation and contraception. And then the second part, we dive into the health consequences uh, of steroid use in bodybuilding. We got so much out of this episode and we know you guys will too. So enjoy. It's time to level up. Victoria, thank you so much for coming on the Level Up podcast. We're both so excited to have you on. And today we'll be talking all things about steroids, really, a topic that Sherelle and I have not touched on because we just don't really have the knowledge. So here you are um, and we're really excited to have you on. Thank you guys for having me. It's, uh, it's been a long time since I've done a podcast, so I'm very excited. Oh, we feel so privileged. Um, as Danny was saying, you know, we, you're someone that we've wanted to get on the show for a very long time. And steroid abuse and performance enhancing drugs is a very taboo topic in the fitness industry. And we really wanted to be able to get someone on who has a level of knowledge that we don't in this area. But before we get into it, like we would love you just to introduce yourself to our audience and our listeners and tell them a bit about your background and how you became so passionate in researching this topic. Yes, that's a, that's a long story. I haven't told in a while. Um, so a bit of my background. So I am a researcher, first and foremost. Um, I am a researcher. I'm an interdisciplinary. So I go between cellular to social and everything in between and beyond. Um, my work specifically focuses on female athlete health, uh, female athlete reproductive health. But... The big piece that nobody has actually really gone into deep before is the implications and knowledge about steroid use. Mm -hmm. So I study both the use of anabolic androgenic steroids, as well as the use of estrogens and progesterones. They don't really have a good, like, I was actually talking to my, my dissertation supervisor about this. I'm like, they don't really have a sexy name, like Mm -hmm. anabolic steroids. It's just estrogens (laughs) and progesterones because they come in many different forms. And that's what people get often really confused about with those drugs is that it's not just like quote birth control or birth control Mm -hmm. pills. There's many different kind of sub names that gets applied to them, Mm -hmm. um, which does actually influence the ways in which they've been researched as well as even just conceptualized within sport Mm. or for performance purposes. So that's what my work looks at. Um, I have been doing this a long time. I've got, I mean, master's and bachelor's and certifications and this, that, and everything else. And I've done the gym trainer and exercise, certified exercise physiologist and all that stuff. Mm. But I've been all over the place. Um, I started in the industry at like 15. Mm. Um, I was a classical ballet dancer before that. And I was going through my own kind of health saga type thing of sorts. I could say that I um, had an eating disorder, joined the gym, Mm. 
to run on the treadmill because uh, I was mm-hmm. over training as well at the time and saw that people were having a lot more fun weight training. And I was like, I want to do that mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and never looked back. And so I've been training for over half my life. I can now say yeah. that, which is kind of cool. And um, got into the industry shortly after because I just wanted to learn. Mm-hmm. I realized very quickly that, especially at like 15, that maybe the guys in the weight pit didn't know as much as they thought they knew. <laughs> ah. uh, so I started doing night school to do personal training. And uh, then that kind of opened me up to the world of exercise physiology. And so that's what I went off to university for after I graduated. Um, and so, yeah, I've been around. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of the industry. Um, and I've also experienced that myself as a female athlete. So I've mm. experienced my own health difficulties as specific to reproductive health. Um, and I've been in that world where my body was doing things that I didn't understand um, and that doctors didn't understand either because mm. they were comparing me to the general population. And so at, mm. um, I think the really big kind of moment in my life was at 18 when all of a sudden my body tried to have its own period uh, after I'd been on the pill from a very young age put on to be able to quote regulate my cycle for (laughs) dance even though I really hadn't started going through puberty Mm. and I had that eating disorder simultaneously and so when my body tried to have that first cycle my immune system literally shut down. Mm. So, well, first it exploded and then it shut down because I had pneumonia and bronchitis and laryngitis Mm. and my cortisol went super sky high and then it bottomed out and my voice actually changed. I grew hair places that I didn't know you could and Mm. my thyroid stopped working and I gained 30 pounds and, you know, it was just this, that, and everything else. Mm. So that was kind of my big moment because going through doctors, they really didn't have answers for me. Um, when it came to my menstruation, one specialist would say one thing, another would say something else that would completely like contradict it. Um, they would give me more pills that were estrogens and progesterones to try mm. to promote menses mm. at the same times. They were the same forms that I was given to control and actually reduce it. So mm. as a young, very curious mind, I was like, this doesn't make sense. Um, and I continued to weight train throughout this whole process. And at that same time, I was getting really into the hardcore bodybuilding scene. And I started to know people for the first time in my life that were like steroid users, or as mm. my dad used to say, the juice monkeys. And I could <laughs> never understand like this negative connotation around it. Yeah. Because I would know these guys and I'd be like, they don't seem like, you know, and again, big air quotes here, like mm-hmm. criminal mm-hmm. or pinheads or like all of those really kind of nasty stereotypes. I'm like, I don't see that. I just see mm. these really nice, like gregarious guys that teach me about bodybuilding. Um, mm. And so as I'm going through school, I'm doing like sociology courses of sport and learning about like the evils of anabolics. And I'm like, really? I got to learn more about this. Mm. So it was this weird sum of all factors, um, cacophony of sorts that happened that I was getting to explore both personally in my own health journey, but also within my fitness journey and within school, both learning about the social and of the physiological side of it that really brought my interest of steroid use. Um, And like I said, both estrogens, progesterones, but also androgens and also a whole host of other drugs as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the same time, the 
natural quote, like endogenous hormonal processes as well. Cause we can't learn about the one without the other. They go mm. together. Um, and here I am today. I'll, gosh, a long time. I think I'm, this is my 29th consecutive year of school. Wow. What an incredible story. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that, Victoria. Mm -hmm. I I just wanted to like go back a little Mm -hmm. bit. When you were um, 18 and you were Mm -hmm. going through your own health journey and you decided to come off contraception and sort of, you Mm -hmm. know, start working towards improving your overall health, what made you come off like oral contraception? And like, how was that process yourself going through like healthcare system from practitioner to practitioner to try and get answers? I can only imagine like how frustrating that would have been back then like it is now let alone Mm. back then Mm. I am blessed that my mother was a nurse practitioner so Mm. that was a godsend because Mm. she knew kind of the dark side of the medical world and in Canada at least because we are a public health care system your hands are tied to being able to help like push yourself through and advocate for yourself. It's a little different than more of that um, private medical system. Mm. So she did have some sage advice. And like, whenever we'd go to a specialist, she'd be like, nope, on to the next. Because right away, if they would say something that she just didn't agree with. But um, just to go back to your first question. So the decision to go off, to be honest, I did not know the like other side of contraceptives at the time. It wasn't that I was going off because I was worried about my future fertility Mm. or anything like that. What actually started to happen, like in hindsight, I can look back and be like, Mm. now I get it. But it's taken me a long time to get there with my research was that, um, so I went on, got put on the pill after only two cycles, um, which when you are going Mm. through puberty, it is, it's it's not supposed to be rough, but it is rough. Your body is trying to figure out how to make these connections for the first time. Mm. And if you don't have all of the particular variables to help make that process seamless of sorts, it can be a little bit more rocky for an individual. So Mm. I was now in hindsight, well, actually a couple of years after through investigation, we realized I was severely anemic. So Mm. right away, things like having super heavy bleeding and cramping and Mm. fatigue well, yeah, I was anemic. Mm-hmm. Um, also my, um, my, my, I would just like mood wise, I would just like flatline. I wouldn't get angry. I wouldn't get sad. I just would flatline mm-hmm. in hindsight. I wasn't having an ovulatory cycle. Cause I was at the beginning of my reproductive story. Yeah. You don't have ovulatory regular cycles at the beginning of your reproductive story. So, um, but I was put on the pill so young, um, and that, that essentially castrated me um and with the eating disorder simultaneous and Mm. exercise addiction i not only had castrated my hypothalamus pituitary function which that would be what kind of gets called like the functional hypothalamic amenorrhea but then i also had my hypothalamus pituitary ovarian access shut down because of the pill Mm, so when i was starting to get healthy and in remission from my eating disorder i started to notice that i would get really bad mood swings on the pill. And that mm. never happened before. I didn't, I didn't have any bleeding at all when I was on birth control. Mm. Um, and I was on a very, what's called a, like a low dose contraceptive. And so when I started to get those mood swings, that was when I was like, I need to get off this pill. Mm. Yeah. In hindsight, I was getting those mood swings because my 
hypothalamus pituitary connection was coming back. Mm. And my body was trying to figure out what to do, even in light of being castrated because of the pill. Yeah. Um, so in, wow. in hindsight, we now know that, but of back course. then it was just moody and I didn't like who I would become for two weeks out of the month. Yeah. Um, and so I went off the pill on my own accord. Um, and I actually, even back then I saw a naturopath who, um, you know, realized I had like really bad vitamin B deficiencies and vitamin D deficiencies. And I was anemic. And so worked on that stuff. Um, albeit not as great as I now know it should have been. Um, <laughs> and then when I got sick, I can say it was awful to go mm. through the medical system. Yeah. Um, I wish it was a, like a, I mean, I just wish it was easier than it was. And <laughs> it was awful. Um, so my best advice though, now going through it, um, and then also going through it with my, actually my own mother, um, not for reproductive issues, but as a woman with chronic critical illness mm. and myself today still have chronic critical illness. Um, you have to advocate for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You cannot trust that your physicians have you in their best interest, unfortunately. And I think that's a really big flaw that we have within the idea or the nebulous of modern medicine is like doctors are supposed to care for me. Mm. They're supposed to care about me. And in a perfect world, yes, they would. But we don't live in a perfect world. Mm. And especially in 2021, halfway through or almost to the end of the year, our medical system is more complex and complicated than it's ever been. So it means that certain types of non-pandemic related things are kind of getting pushed to the side. Uh, that's yeah. not where the focal is, even though, yeah, you, you know, people with reproductive disorders, they had them before, they have them now, but mm. that's not really where funding is going. That's not really where public interest is going or advocacy. And so knowing and advocating for yourself, and by knowing, I mean, taking the time to record your concerns, your questions, your symptoms, your timeline, Mm. bringing somebody with you if you can, because I can say even myself with all the education I have, when I'm in a doctor's office, I need to be the patient. Mm. I don't need to be the scribe writing down all the answers that the doctors are saying or quickly going back and checking my notes and making sure that I've asked all the questions. I love when I can have somebody with me that I trust Mm. to be able to be my ally because that's really what we also need in order to, we need to be able to advocate for ourselves and we need to have an ally. Mm. Um, The other thing that I've learned over the years is that the more transparent that you can be, the better. A lot of times people um, maybe feel that they are an a nuisance or especially as women, we're a nuisance or we're annoying or they're going to think that we're um, complaining or we are hypochondriacs. Throw that shit out. Mm. If you do not feel good, nobody can take that away from you. Mm. And do not stop until somebody listens to you. And it might be a month trying to find doctors. It could be a year. It could be years, but do not stop. And you might have to go private if you are able to. Not everybody is. And that is a place of privilege to be able to, 
but if you can go private for things like making sure you're getting lab work done um, and, and lab work is not, I'm, I guess I'm an, I'm a devil's advocate when it comes to all this stuff, but lab mm. work is not perfect. There's not, I would say a, not much of an awareness, but actually how to read it properly and analyze it properly. But it does give you a place to start if you can hook up with somebody who can go through all that stuff with you. Mm. Um, there is no one right form of medicine either. I think as we're, I mean, probably a lot of your listeners are from that Western medical model, but there are alternate models that mm. have been around for much longer than the Western model. And they sometimes can give us answers that we can't get in. Mm. traditional Western medical model. And that's totally cool and awesome. And so don't neglect those. Um, And so, yeah, I think those are some of my biggest pieces of advice. Mm. Wow. Thank you so much for speaking your truth and speaking from experience as well. There are a lot of lessons in there and lots of um, empowerment. As you said, don't stop until you get answers, which is so important for everyone to to realize. Mm, Yeah. And I really resonated with that, Victoria. I know I've shared the story on the podcast about when I got the implant on out and even myself, like I'm a nurse midwife as a background, even myself, remember, Danny, I walked out and Mm. I was like, oh, no, leave it in. You know, yeah, you get and- intimidated by the GPs. I felt that as well. Yeah. I had to message you like before <laughs> and after for a pep talk. I'm about to see this GP. And his answer was stay on the pill, stay on the pill, change pills. I'm like, Sherelle, this is because you so just sort of you feel dare. a bit vulnerable in there. Yeah. So yeah. We've, and we've all got our experience, right? Even I do. Mm. And that's what I try to remind, like remind the people that I get to to work with with my consulting work because I haven't actually been on any podcasts to be able to share this like crazy year for me. But mm. I um I had a great care team when I lived in British Columbia. I now live in Ontario, and so I lost my great care team when I oh. moved here. And uh, even though it's still Canada, each of the provinces' medical systems are laid out a little bit differently. Um, and to be able to get a gynecologist in Ontario has been awful. So Uh because of my past, I require um, like actual imaging every six months. I have not had it for two and a half years. Oh Um, no. And even though I am like, like knocking on doors and my general practitioner is phenomenal and he's been getting to the best that he can Mm. things push through but the one of the gynecologists I've said saw just said, "Well, why, are you, why don't you go on the pill?" Mm, and I like looked crazy. at him and I was like, "I'm <laughs> just saying that to you." What an I insult! Are you what serious? Let me just send you my research and my PhD. God. Yeah, and then uh, and then said, "Well, if you don't want to get pregnant, there's no issue." And I'm like, "I oh my am God. medically deemed infertile." so because i am infertile you're not going to help me oh my god and i just stood up and walked out i was like i cannot if i say if words come out of my mouth right now they're going to get me into trouble yeah so the best thing i can do is just walk out and appreciate that you know his knowledge is not for me yeah that's nice yeah i can't fault him Mm. as an individual it's the Mm. establishment itself and the establishment itself is so fractured and you do get some really good practitioners out there but for every good one there's going to be some not so great ones Mm -hmm. and then you're going to also have ones that maybe are not so great on the bedside manner 
but can be really, really knowledgeable. But maybe you're somebody that needs that bedside manner mm. and that's okay too. Mm. But it is really rare to find a practitioner that has both the knowledge and the bedside manner together mm. and that fits your needs. Mm. Yeah, for That sure. is a rare bird in medicine. Yeah, mm. it absolutely is. And I think you mentioned there as well, like there's so many other alternative ways to address some of these issues. And I almost, um, I feel like, a bit sad for for people that perhaps aren't as strong-willed as us going into some of those appointments and speaking to some of those practitioners and going through traditional healthcare that don't know any different. And like you said, um, Victoria, it's about educating the the wider population. And that's what we're all about here is being like, look, there's other ways of going about things. And there's not just one model or one way to sort of get answers. But I would really love to then, you sort of mentioned that you went on contraception at a young age and it interfered with your natural cycle and I think to be honest that's the case for so many other women we actually didn't go through all those hormonal changes like naturally and I myself like I think I was on the pill at maybe 15 or 16 Mm. so how does like going on the pill interfere with that like regulating a normal cycle and like what do we see as we come off the pill now like we never actually establish a full proper cycle is that right Yeah, in a nutshell. So can we just take one micro step back? It was a phenomenal Mm. question and I don't want to forget it, but (laughs) we're talking about the pill, but we also then have to talk about other forms of hormonal contraceptives because there are Mm. other forms of hormonal contraceptives as well that are offered and offered at increasing rates right now because of there is a little bit more pushback against the pill. Mm. which then has opened the door, yeah. even though it's the same kind of mechanism. Oh. Hand, uh, for this one's better. <laughs> oh, yeah, God. exactly. So when we talk about hormonal contraceptive, think of it like an umbrella. Mm. And that umbrella has so many underlying categories to it. So there are, uh, if we just think of route of entry. So there are pills, there are shots, there are hormonal IUDs. There are non-hormonal IUDs. There are patches. There are implants. There are rings. There are, did I say shots? Yep. So, the, I mean. There's a lot. There's a lot of them. Mm. Um, and each of those different route of entry or types have different combinations of specific pharmaceutical steroid hormones. Mm-hmm. Some of them have progesterone only some of them have progesterone plus an estrogen some of them have an estrogen plus a bastardized molecule that you can't really call anything because it's not an androgen and it's not an estrogen it's not a progesterone so it's not i don't even know what to call them in my own research still looking for that word too Mm. um and then you have varying Uh, doses of all of these and also types. So it's not just one type of estrogen that's used. It's not just one type of progesterone that's used. Each of the different forms of progesterone actually have different effects in the body. And that's one thing that people do, I think maybe not talk about a lot when you go to the doctor is that different forms of progesterones. So progesterone is not the same as progesterone. So Mm -hmm. I try to over almost over emphasize it when I say it because a progesterone is what your body makes. A progesterone is a synthetically created molecule, which is different than a progesterone 
of sorts. It's got no E on the end, which mm-hmm. is kind of the other nebulous of things that also include uh, bioidentical progesterone, which is still external to the body, but it looks more closely related to the one that you actually make. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, it gets confusing even for me in this world mm. of research, but back to my whole progesterones, there are different types of them. Um, there are some that are synthetically created from the progesterone molecule. There are some that are synthetically created from an testosterone molecule. Mm. And then each of those have their own families and their own micro umbrellas. So there are different types of progesterone derived progesterones, different types of progesterone or testosterone derived progesterones. So there are so many. And then again, we go into doses and then we also Uh. go into the ratios with estrogens and there's different types of estrogens. So there's this Mm. infinite combination (laughs) that you can have. And that's why it is a, like it is a nebulous and going back to kind of what I said in my intro is that these aren't just in quote contraceptives. They are in other types of, um, of, uh, pharmaceutical, um, categories. So like hormonal replacement therapy, mm. um, or they are used for, um, hormonal contraceptives is the umbrella, but then they are used for, um, let's say, therapeutically treating, um, heavy cycles or therapy, therapeutically treating endometriosis or trying to, you know, actually more for what's called a lifestyle drug convenience sake Mm. or for acne. So Mm. these two kind of yin and yang of progesterone and estrogen families have been applied to a whole ton of different, um, both what would be called like medical need and then non-medical need, even though they're often just come in the form of, or like, you know, you go to the pharmacy and you pick up a birth control pill. Yeah. So, wow. Thank you for explaining that. I have (laughs) grappled with this for like six years trying to write my dissertation and Mm. say it in a simple way. And I really want just like one easy name for all of this stuff. (laughs) So I tend to call them pharmaceutical reproduction control because the overarching Uh, goal or intended use is for controlling some facet of reproduction. Mm. Whether we're talking about fertility, whether we're talking about anti-fertility, whether we're talking about reproductive um, function. So that would be like menstruation or um, reproductive function in terms of like menopause. So HRT um, or some type of socially constructed aspect that has to do with more femininity, like, you know, having Mm. awesome skin or mm. not ha- having the, uh, quote, inconvenience of menstruation, mm. uh, which is also more of this social thing. So that's the name that I played around with. So, but the world doesn't know it yet. Mm. So I then have to go back to just saying estrogens and progesterones. Mm. Um, mm. So back on track now that we know that there's a whole lot of them. Wow. Um, yes. <laughs> so different types of even just hormonal contraceptives have different effects on how they um, influence our body's biochemistry and physiological function. So different forms of progesterone. So most of the synthetically created progesterone, progesterones, pardon me, are way stronger than our own naturally created progesterone, mm-hmm. about 400, give or take. And depending on what type of progesterone it is, so an androgenic 
um, derived or a progesterone derived, um, it will have a different impact on other receptors in the body. Mm -hmm. So those that are derived from um, androgens or testosterone specifically tend to actually elicit androgenic implications. Yeah. You can have- Just to pause there, mm. is that the, so that would be like the Implanon and the mini pill um, that are those mostly progestion-based contraceptions. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. But even those that are are paired with an estrogen, but that say is um, like an uh, LNG or I can never say the name right. Levonostrinol. Oh, I'm not even going to try. I know what you're trying to say. <laughs> yeah. You guys do like, I'll stand in front of my like conference boards and stuff like that. Oh. And I will get tongue tied. No, oh. Yeah. It is. It's like this weird medical dyslexia I get oh. um, for pharmaceutical names only. But oh. uh, I just call it LNG. Like, it's like the, it is the progesterone that's in the Mirena, but it's yeah. also mm. the one that is in a lot of orals as okay. well. Yeah. Um, and that is in those varying dosages in those orals. So mm. with, um, the androgenic derived ones or testosterone derived ones, they bind to our receptors differently than those that are a progesterone. There yeah. are implications associated with the progesterone ones. There are, are typically more affiliated with less overall, um, metabolic implications while you're on. However, when you come off, there are implications vice versa for the other one. There are some uh, progesterones that are testosterone derived that have more associated metabolic implications while you're um, on, but not when you come off, a lot of those go away. Uh, And that's really where it gets so complicated because to answer your question simply is, is that it just depends on what type of contraceptive somebody has been on. The duration of use is so important too. Mm. When did they start? Did they start at 21 after they've already gone through puberty or did they start at 13? Yeah. Mm. And after how many cycles, Mm. if you got your period at say starting at 11 and you had, let's say a total of 24 cycles before you started and half of those reached ovulation. Mm. You may be, maybe in a better situation when you come off at 25 than somebody who started at 16 that had really sporadic irregular cycles, never really ovulated, and that also had comorbidities of other health implications, let's say like hypothyroidism, mm. yeah. even though you started younger. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. when people try to yeah. create these very generalized statements, it's so hazardous because it really does depend on the individual. Somebody might start it at, at 14, but go off it by 16. Hmm. Are they going to have the same type of implications as somebody who went on at 18 and went off at 32? Mm. Yeah, it's so true. I and you can't feel research robbed. this. I almost feel oh, robbed yeah. of not knowing this stuff when I was oh. like, Friggin' seventeen or eighteen, like I wish, yeah. I wish we, we just thought go... it was a magic pill that solved all of life. Oh, just problems, skip right? my period. I'm, mine I'm was the social today. aspects. I wanted to keep <laughs> yeah. my skin up, or yeah, it was yeah. summer coming up, so I just um, take all the active pills yeah. in a row until I had a period for like thirty days, and I'm like, okay, there's something <laughs> wrong. You just think yeah. it's a magic pill that solves all of life's problems, like... and that that literally hasn't been taught to us since the beginning, though. Like yeah. I get goosebumps when I talk about this because. Mm. 
when you go back, so estrogen and progesterone and, and I mean, all pharmaceutical steroids were only created in the late 1920s into the early 1930s. Progesterone, the synthetic derivative wasn't until the 1950s. So these drugs are relatively new phenomenon, but they were marketed right from the get-go as the magical pill that could solve all women's problems problems fucking problems <laughs> yeah and and but they're the socially deemed problems like yeah the reality is is that if somebody's menstruation is so bad that they want to stop it it means that they should probably figure out why yeah yeah not just stop it and go on with their life <laughs> And that's unfortunately what happens. And I think that's one of the biggest taboos with puberty itself is that you get young girls like myself that got put on it at a young age um, or that got, you know, got put on it for acne. It's like, well, why do you have acne in the first place as you're going through puberty? Could it be because Mm -hmm. you got the highs and the lows and that roller coaster is for some individuals what puberty kind of holds. However, if all the other facets and variables are working properly, Good stress management, hydration, not eating a diet that's causing them to have a ton of inflammatory um, properties. Mm. If they're getting an adequate sleep, if they actually have proper skincare, are they going to break out? Maybe not as bad. Mm. So if we lo- talk about it that way, or if we talk about like, yeah, you might have some heavy sporadic bleeding because your mm. body's literally writing its story for reproduction right now. Mm it gives you that sense of internal knowing, which then helps ride you through. And also you can do other types of interventions to help teenagers through it, not just putting them on the pill and castrating them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, That just, it's so frustrating for me because like, I still hear those stories and I go like, have we gotten nowhere? And the yeah. answer is no, <laughs> we yeah. haven't. And unfortunately, so I keep trying to go back to your question because it's, it was such a good one. So um, maybe let's start with the basics of what some types of hormonal contraceptives do, not mm-hmm. all. Mm-hmm. Most hormonal contraceptives, their goal is to stop you from conceiving uh, and to stop you from conceiving at the point of not allowing ovulation to occur. Some forms of hormonal contraceptives, such as the hormonal IUD, are promoted to still enable ovulation from like to occur. However, research is showing that that's actually a lot more varied than mm-hmm. what the companies might promote it as. They mm-hmm. kind of promote it as like, oh yeah, you're still going to ovulate, but Research is showing that it's actually a little bit more varied than that. They're a little bit more nuanced than that, that um, with those hormonal um, IUDs, it really depends on like when you first get them implanted, you're going to have way more hormones coursing through your body than Mm -hmm. at the end of your five or six years. So you might be more likely to ovulate towards that end of use, not right Mm -hmm. at the beginning, just like depending on your other hormonal milieu happening beyond just that. IUD inside of you, it might also influence whether or not you continue to ovulate. A lot of women actually, in my experience, don't continue to ovulate, at least not regularly. Mm -hmm. And that when they do, sometimes it can be not the most awesome experience because they've got their own natural progesterone trying to happen at the same time that they've got their 
lovely synthetic derivatives going on at the same time. Mm. So it, uh, it is so varied. So anyways, ovulation is what they are trying to control. And in order to do that, it essentially one of the axes, and there's many different axes that are involved, but one of the different pathways is, is that they provide synthetic estrogen and progesterone to stabilize and stop your gonadotropin hormones, which are FSH and LH, from um, being produced, as well as over time, your ovarian estrogen that gets created by the ovaries as uh, and kind of signals that cascade of the gonadotropins. They work together in this very complicated dance, but it will also um, inhibit that because if they're not getting sent signals from the gonadotropins, the ovaries are like, peace out, I'm done. I don't need to make any more estrogen. Mm. And because you are not ovulating, you're not making your progesterone since that's how our female body makes Mm. most of its progesterone. Mm. So you essentially create an environment of, in like the natural reproductive cascade gets depleted. So you're a hypo hormone state, low hormone state Mm. that then you provide synthetic in levels that are often much higher than the natural normal hormonal state of a woman. And those synthetics don't do the same thing as our natural normal hormones. So progesterone is a beautiful example of this. So progesterone, the one that our bodies make, it has a host of different things that it does, including it is incredibly protective for our bones and our thyroid. It creates GABA. So it is so good for our nervous system. So important for neurotransmitter balance. Um, It also is incredibly important for our basal metabolic rate, our Mm. sleep, Mm. um, with the synthetic derivative, you don't get the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, even with certain types of progesterone that is bioidentical, but not orally um, route of entry, so say the cream, that does not cross the blood-brain barrier. Therefore, you do not get the same neurotransmitter benefits as you do from either oral bioidentical or your own natural creation. Um, and so when it comes down to like, what is the pill doing? It, it's doing that it's creating this, um, this almost like a really bad copycat mm. of your body's own hormones that doesn't mm. do all the right things. And that over time will start to affect other systems of the body because the body is this really beautifully complicated, tight intricate feedback loops that signals get sent and certain things happen as a result or conversely if certain signals don't get sent properly they don't happen and Mm. then your body can try to compensate and sometimes it compensates in a positive way so in a a positive adaptation and sometimes it's a maladaptation Mm. meaning that your body's just trying to do the best that it can with what it has and sometimes what it does might not actually be the best long term Mm. And that is what happens with the pill. So you do start to see, or I mean, hormonal contraceptives, you do start to see these maladaptations as well as these adaptations, but often over time, the adaptations turn into maladaptations because the body just cannot keep up with not having what it needs Mm. to function. And it's not just our reproductive hormones. Um, And again, this is another, like I just said, with, with progesterone, all those things I mentioned we're beyond what progesterone does for our actual reproductive system. 
Same thing, estrogen, there's over 400 different things it does in our body. Mm, Wow. So they're not just, when we take estrogen and uh, progesterone, we are not just affecting our reproductive system. Mm. We are affecting everything in the body. And it might not be on a magnified scale at first, but the longer we're on it and the longer that we're not giving our body what it needs, the more implications that can arise. Mm. That's problematic because when we talk about long-term implications, bone health, your bones need estrogen and progesterone to be able to be as healthy as possible for later on in life. So if you are between the age of say 16 and 38, you're on the pill, you've literally robbed your bones Mm. of the two ingredients is getting probably other ingredients, but two of the ingredients it needs to be able to be as strong and dense as possible for later on in life. Mm. Why do women have higher rates of osteoporosis? There you go. So likewise, uh, brain right now, there's some fascinated, fascinating stuff on uh, estrogen and Alzheimer's. Um, and the implications of estrogen for Alzheimer's and either states of hypo or hyper estrogen and how that affects our brain health for depression. That's one of the areas that I've gotten really interested and involved with thanks to a colleague of mine, who's a neuroendocrinologist and has kind of really been working together on this stuff. Cause I am mm-hmm. so scared of our future, mm-hmm. uh, future of humanity with knowing what birth control pills or just estrogen and progesterone does for the brain long-term in women. Um, there's been some really good research. And I say that not lightly. I know a lot of probably people on your guys' podcast be like, oh yeah, there's research. I am, you do not want me as a reviewer because I will pick it apart <laughs> every which way when it comes to this type of work. Mm. So when I say that there was a really good study, like I'm actually very sincere. Like Mm. it is a very good study. Um, but there is a a body of work right now on long-term depression after early birth control use. So what this research has looked at is the impact of starting birth control before or at age 18. And what does that do for our neurochemistry in our late twenties and into our thirties? And so what it's showing is that there are much higher rates of depression and anxiety, higher rates of also um, social comparison issues. So eating disorders, Mm. low self-esteem, bad relationships. For me, I was like, tick, tick, tick. Okay. (laughs) It's all lining up. Wow. They've noticed a higher overall affinity for coping. So I call it like the Wonder Woman complex that you can cope with a lot. However, in order to do that, your stress hormones go up to keep you going. Mm. And then you ride almost on this wave of adrenaline and cortisol to get you through the hard situations that you perceive as being like, oh yeah, whatever, I got this. Yeah, my, my whole early 20s. We were literally talking about that just before <laughs> we this. Were, we were, we were talking right. about this off air. But Victoria, yeah, there's just so much in it as well. And I just think it's it's crazy when all the light bulbs go off. And when you mentioned there about osteoporosis, I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like mm. you don't know. And 
I just even was thinking earlier, like the problem is never the problem. We're so quick to jump at, oh, we'll treat the acne, treat treat the heavy periods, treat the PCOS, treat the endo, treat the pain, mm-hmm. rather than looking at the actual mechanics of what's happening in the body and why we're getting it, which is huge mm-hmm. at the moment. But hearing all of this, like it makes me like want to ask, like what sort of change would you want to see when it comes to this level of knowledge? Like obviously you're spreading these sorts of messages and saying it's complex and we just don't know a lot of the things yet, but this is what we're getting. You know, when it comes to that whole birth control lifestyle drug conversation what is the overriding message that you'd want to put out to other women I think one of the first things is I'm not against it Mm. I think a lot of people perceive that I'm anti-birth control and I'm anti-hormonal contraceptives or hormonal manipulation far from the truth Mm. I think that there is a certain um there are certain cases that this might be the best course of action for them. And I'm also 100% women's rights pro-choice. Mm. So I do not believe in taking that away, but I really, truly, um, honestly, like I will go to my grave saying that if you are not being told all the information, is it actually pro-choice? Yep. Yeah. And my, my, my take on that is no. So how can you be a conscious consumer if you're not being told the information that you need to be able to make a conscious decision. Mm. Um, and then that for, therefore is not pro, pro choice. Mm. You're not being given a choice. You're getting only half the story. And I think that a lot of people within that kind of reproductive right movement, if they could know that <laughs> they might look at it a little bit differently because why are we allowing women to harm themselves mm. in order to gain reproductive rights? Is that really them taking control of their fertility? Yeah. Yeah. That sort of conversation around informed consent is something we're really big on. Like what, like informed consent is something that's so heavy in healthcare yet, you know, here we are sort of learning, right. Danny, like being like, I wish we knew this sort of stuff in school. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Cause maybe it doesn't mean we wouldn't have taken it in the first place. Maybe I just would have waited a little bit Mm -hmm. and then taken it for a shorter amount of time because my skin really um, affected me in so many ways, mental health wise, but I, I wouldn't have probably chosen to be on it for as long. So it doesn't mean we're like, don't take it ever, but just be smart about or informed about when you do choose to take it. Yeah. And that's exactly, that's exactly my perspective on it. And also knowing that everything we do has risks, walking out the door Mm. has risks, you know, me sitting in front of a computer with Wi-Fi, there could be potential risks. I don't Mm. know. What I do know is, is that there are things I can do today to help manage those risks. And when it comes to hormonal contraceptives, steroids, the whole nebulous, there are certain things that you can do to help with some of the risks that you are inadvertently opening yourself up to. You can't, you know, stop it from actually castrating you because that's the whole point of being on it. Mm. But some of the secondary implications. So for example, um, utilizing certain types of micronutrients that we know get depleted when you are on an oral medication that gets metabolized the way that estrogens and progesterones do through the liver, as well as the um, 
other micronutrients that get depleted through some of the other mechanisms involved with how the pill works into your body. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know that there are some things around stress and coping that can also be incredibly important, Mm -hmm. especially if you've got a skewed perception of what stress is and that that stress is still having this massive impact on your body. Um, looking at coherences and comorbidities, are there certain types of users that maybe shouldn't be users? Are there certain types of individuals that might be better suited for other forms of hormonal contraceptives? So there is, like I said, there's a nebulous involved. So the right pill for the job. That's actually one of my theories I use in one of my chapters in my dissertation is the right tool for the job. Mm-hmm. My argument is, is that we're not choosing the right tool for the job. Yeah. There are other forms of um, pharmaceuticals that can be used to treat certain types of issues like cramping. Mm -hmm. So if you have extreme cramping and you've tried all of your basic entry level things, and that's not getting you anywhere, and you know, pharmaceuticals are going to be the option you're going towards, well, why don't we choose the right tool for the job then? Yep. Um, you know, there are certain types of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories that have been shown at incredibly high rates mm. of positive for the prostaglandins that get created that are causing that cramping. And those don't have implications for ovulation. Mm. Um, just like if we're going to be manipulating hormones, we have to know what we're manipulating and why we're manipulating it. And then in who? So if I were to take that step back and, you know, when I talk to educators and physicians themselves, it's going, okay, is putting an 18 year old on an oral contraceptive pill the best for them? Like, let's lay out the individual factors and variables here. Let's look at their reproductive history. Let's look at their family history. Let's look at their lifestyle. Let's look at their hormonal milieu when they first come in. Let's look at those things. Mm -hmm. Let's also continue to do monitoring for different lab markers affiliated with some of these implications. Let's talk about duration of use. What is potentially going to be a healthier duration of use for an individual? Mm. And also the transition off. I think a lot of people have messaged me over the years being after they've heard me speak about this being like, you know, I went off the pill and it was the best thing I ever did. Uh, I'm going off tomorrow. And I'm like, Oh, uh, be careful. Uh, yeah. Get your seatbelt and your helmet and your elbow pads and your knee pads and warn everybody in your life and be <laughs> careful because it's not the same for everybody. Uh, like it's not, it's not the good for everybody. For some individuals, that transition off needs to be and should be supported. I would actually say for everybody, the transition off should be supported. You can't just take away something that your body has created all these adaptations and um, and, uh, maladaptations too. It's like pulling the last Jenga block and hoping that it doesn't fall over often. Mm. And so we have to be able to like, in an educated way, support people. Look, you are an alcoholic. You go into your physician, they will give you treatment to help you come off that drug safely. There yeah. should be the same titration methods for most pharmaceuticals out there that are being used today. Mm. But particularly when we're talking about production yeah like it's it's scary thing Mm. if you just rip that off and somebody's been on especially like a high dose Mm. estrogen and a androgenic progesterone because there are like for androgenic progesterones or the testosterone derived ones there are certain things that we need to be able to tell patients that like you are probably going to have a 
spike of androgen production when you go off that should last or may last for around three months. Mm. You don't have PCOS. Mm. You don't have hyperandrogenism. This is a direct consequence of what you have been taking, but we need to monitor it to make sure it does not last more than three months. And then we need to be able to treat it appropriately if it does. And then once it drops, a lot of times what happens is women will come off, they'll spike in their androgen production, and then they'll bottom out. And then they'll, mm. their low testosterone production. Well, low is not a good place to be either, but we never talk about that for a young active female, what low testosterone actually feels like, and it's not good. Mm. Um, just like if you're on the pill, there are implications potentially for your thyroid. Well, that's really easy to manage. Like regular labs for not just TSH, but free T4, free T3 antibodies, being able to support what's actually getting influence, which is not only our pituitary signals that get sent to the thyroid, um, but then also that conversion from T4 to T3 and transportation. Well, there are certain types of basic micronutrient interventions we can do to support that. I think the pituitary itself gets so much abuse Mm. in today's society from all the stress that we put ourselves through and all of the lifestyle interventions that we perceive are helping us, but really are doing more damage. And that pituitary gland can only do so much. And if you've taken away one of those functions, sending signals to the ovaries, Mm. and then you don't fix all those other crazy stress that you're putting on your pituitary, and then you go off the pill, what makes you think it's going to just suddenly start sending signals to your ovaries without help? Yeah. It's not. Mm. That's asking a lot of your body. Mm. Yeah. Oh, there's so much in it, isn't there? And like mm. so many light bulbs were going off for me, Victoria, when you were sort of speaking of the, all of that. Like when I came off um, the, the Implanon, which I had in for like six years, I, I it felt like I was going through menopause. Like my temperature was through the roof. I, I was having yeah. breakouts. And like you said, there's no support when you're coming off things because God, I had to convince him over like three appointments to take the thing out. He wasn't mm. going to say, I'm going to support you in doing it. I was like, see you later. I'm just going to get this thing out. But there isn't, there's that lack of support. And like you said, a lot of women hear podcasts like this or they read books or they hear or absorb certain information, but then there's no follow-up and there's no like, oh, here's the process or here's the signs and the symptoms that you should be looking out for. And here's some strategies to manage it. Mm-hmm. And that it's so different for everybody. And like yeah. the biggest mm-hmm. piece of advice I say is track, track, mm-hmm. track, track. It's really hard to be an ob- objective observer of yourself, especially when you feel like shit. Yeah. yeah. Like it is so hard. And that's why doctors need doctors too. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. if not, we would have a lot of like opioid addict physicians running around. (laughs) Um, So we have to be able to recognize though, that there are some more like objective based measures that we can use Mm. to help begin to understand and decode our own personal data. Cause at the end of the day, everybody's cycles are different and there's no right way Mm. to have a menstrual cycle. And right now, like the rhetoric around this is like, you must have an obligatory cycle. And you know what? I will completely admit that in the past, I've also you know, promoted that, yes, women, it's really important for you to have obligatory cycles, but I have not said the next part, which is, but not all women are going to have 
that is an option. Mm. Mm. Not all of us do. We create this model of what the right way to have menstruation is or the right way to conceive Mm. or the right way to be on the pill. But the reality is, is that all of us are so different Mm. and that all of those different variables influence somebody who's taking the pill even that has, let's say, an affinity for high adrenal androgen production, their experience innately is going to look different than somebody who doesn't. Or somebody that has certain types of genetic mutations that alter their uh, certain enzymes that convert our androgens into estrogens and our estrogens back into androgens for some people. And then there's also backdoor androgen production. Their experience is going to be so different than somebody who doesn't have that. So whenever I talk about this stuff, I always want people to go back to you, you as an individual. I can tell you what certain things mean, but you're the one that has to find out if you're experiencing those. Yeah. Mm. You are the holder of the data. I am merely the messenger Mm -hmm. explaining how to analyze that data because there's no one way and that it's going to change over our life course. Hormones are dynamic. Mm. And even in a day, our hormones are dynamic. And as women, our hormones are dynamic within this cyclical experience. Mm. And that cyclical experience is not just within the menstrual cycle, but also in the reproductive cycle. And so you mentioned like going off was like having the, like going into perimetopause. I call it the second, second puberty. Yeah. Because things are, things are trying to get connected again. And, um, got, you know, your hormones are high and low and everything else. And often I see people get so scared that they rush into an intervention and that that intervention often has implications because they acted too soon without letting their body figure out what the heck to do. And that takes time. It doesn't mean ignoring that. It just means we have to support. Mm. We do not need to black Hawk come in and completely then castrate you again with some other type of intervention. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of like the high rates of hysterectomies when women go through perimetopause rather than us talking about why is perimetopause tumultuous for you in the first place. Yeah. Mm. And when we talk about those long-term implications of castrating yourself, that's that Mm. right there. You want to talk about why perimetopause has become this awful experience for so many women, because so many women don't have a, personally healthy relationship to their reproductive cycle, mm. both that menstruation, but then over the course of their lifetime. Um, and the more that we mess with it, the more that it's going to give us shit later on. Yeah. Um, but there are things, it's not like all hope is gone. I just think that in my professional opinion, you don't fight fire with fire. Mm. So if your hormones are doing this, that, and everything else, and why would we introduce more either pro So synthetic or anti-hormones. That's like my last step. My first step is going, okay, why is this happening? What can I do to aid in the, um, in the process of getting them back to homeostasis? Mm. Because it's not just about hormone levels. And this kind of goes into my whole thing about labs is that we often look at lab work and we go, oh, this person is high in this and low in this. And I go like, well, that's only serum levels, number one. Mm. 
Number two, what are we testing? I mean, one of my biggest pet peeves is when people get total estrogen instead of estradiol, or they get a thyroid panel that only has one marker. And I'm going like, this is really not telling me a whole heck of a lot. Mm. When we think about how hormones are created in our body, it's a cascade. It is literally a multi-step tiered process. There are different ways that they get created in different endocrine organs in our body. And there are things that are endocrine organs that people don't even call endocrine organs like fat. Fat is an awesome producer of hormones, not necessarily Mm. the good one, the good way, like the more straightforward, it's a lot more chaotic and often a lot more problematic, but nonetheless, it's not just our ovaries and our adrenals and our pituitary that are making hormones. There are hormones that get made within them but that's endocrine. There's also exocrine, paracrine, endocrine. You also have the ways in which your hormones are bound to the receptor. Mm. That receptor matters because there's different types of even estrogen receptors and individuals innately have different experiences to how that receptor binds estrogen, whether we're talking about alphas or betas, but then even that binding, there are a reason why breasts have higher rates of certain types of breast cancers. That's a receptor issue. Mm. And that those receptors get modified over time too, which is really emerging new area of inquiry that is super fascinating. Mm. Talking about how certain medications like tamoxifen, which competitors are using like it's popcorn, but it is a breast cancer drug in which they are showing it alters your receptors. We Mm. also have ways in which hormones get metabolized and transformed. So when you look at hormone serum levels, that is such a small, tiny little piece of the picture Mm. from a hormonal, like how am I understanding somebody's hormonal milieu? Tiny. That's why we have to track. That's why we have to look at things like basal metabolic temperature. That's why we have to look at secondary systems as well. Somebody's cholesterol, somebody's vitamins, somebody's liver, somebody's um, even just basic blood chemistry, all of those give us pictures of how somebody's health looks Mm. and then putting it in personal context. Are they an athlete? A lot of athletes don't have regular ovulatory cycles. Mm. Are they, um, let's say somebody who's got, lives a high stress lifestyle and don't ever just ask, especially for coaches or trainers out there, are you stressed? Cause most people are going to say no, because it's taboo to say, are you stressed? Or you can't really like contextualize that. Yeah. Right. Like what stress for me might not be for you. Mm. Um, we have to talk about the things also that influence our hormones, like sleep. That's a big one. Yeah. Why aren't more physicians, primary care talking about that? Mm. We want to talk about how can we like, you know, bring cortisol levels to a more fluid milieu? How can we influence our um, body's affinity to be able to create gonadotropins. How can we help with our progesterone and estrogen balance? How can we help even with our, uh, cyclical, um, that's the word I'm looking for. I was going to say continuity. That's not the right word. The, uh, regularity. There we go. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> are you having a regular cycle on it? Like a semi, um, like a, what's the word? Like most people don't have perfect 28 day cycles Mm. and 28 is a a myth anyways, but plus or minus. So it's like, if your average is, let's say like 27, uh, if you go 
plus or minus two to three? Are you having that? Or are you having 27 one month, 36 the next, 21 Mm. the next? Mm. That's not in my mind a regular cycle. What is if it was 27 one month and maybe 29, that's Mm. still regular. Mm. But our medical system doesn't talk about it like that. Yeah. Yeah. At all. Yeah. So it is um, so many amazing points again that you've shared. And um, just to sort of recap, I suppose what you mentioned is it will take time once weaning off contraception with support, of course, it will take time amongst lifestyle interventions to then also regulate your cycle or become more regular. Like it took me 18 months, to be honest. And I was getting impatient, but that's just because I thought I was uneducated. So I'm like, how long is it going to take? And it's not just hormones that might be required. You might need a very strategic personalized approach, Mm. but there's no one size fits all even with that. But like people don't give credit to vitamin D. Vitamin D for uh, helping individuals, especially when they're deficient, regain their cycle is critical. Iron, Mm. critical, Mm. absolutely critical. Vitamin um, B12 and B9. And B6, actually, for that matter. Mm. Those are critical. Uh, being able to also not be in a state of fight or flight all the freaking time. Like that was probably the hardest that, part for me. Yeah. <laughs> Competing, yeah, like, training. Yeah. yeah crazy. Yeah, I, say, I say it with like jokingly, but not jokingly. Mm. Why does your body need to make a baby when you're running for your life? Yeah. Like that is the last thing. Just like when people come to me and go like, I don't have a sex drive. And I'm like, why do you even want to enter a, uh, like, you know, the ability to conceive? Because I don't fully, you know, adhere to any one form of science, like evolutionary and um, ancestry genetic science. I love that stuff. I find Mm. it so fascinating. It's not though the only kind of paradigm I follow, but it's taught us some really interesting things about reproduction and fertility, essentially looking at how the more stressed people were in the kind of hunter gatherers, how that impacted not only the number of offspring that they would create. So fewer babies because Mm. they did not have the resources required. Also things like the thrifty gene with anovulatory androgen excess or PCOS, I think is like that to me, I was like, Oh my God, this is me fat, hairy, and infertile. Like you're going through the ice age. Yeah. Famine. Oh, and I was like, wow, wow, thrifty. Yes, my body is very thrifty from all the shit I put it through. Wow. It holds on to fat like no tomorrow. It creates hair like. Oh, there you go. I kind of knew that. I yeah. would have flown to that. No. Yeah. And that, that emerging area of research, I'm like, okay, is this the only thing? No, but it does give us clues. Yeah. Um, as an inter, I think that's where I kind of get this really cool stance as an interdisciplinary researcher because mm. I get to go to all these different worlds and like mm. pull and explore and understand. But then even the stuff from like the 1950s, for example, in the 1950s there was a form of amenorrhea that they called post pill amenorrhea. Mm. We don't talk about that in the 1960s when birth control got released. Um, and they called it post pill, but it was like post estrogen or post progesterone. The 1960, 1960, like to 1964 around the world, birth control got released for the first about four years after there, after it got released, there was in literature post birth control pill or post contraceptive amenorrhea. 
1968 rolls around, it disappears. Oh. Only to be said in very few sources today. Mm. Yeah, so isn't interesting. it interesting? So interesting. And mm. like I, I notice as well, like Victoria, when you're talking about like contraception and, and the pill, you're mm. you're referring like a steroid. And, you know, as mm. you've mentioned there, the why. The but I would love to sort of shift gears and perhaps start mm. talking about some of the anabolic steroids that we see so commonly in the fitness industry. It's something that's not spoken about. It's something that mm. particularly I want to say a lot of women aren't um, – given the best advice on Mm. and because it is like an illegal substance here in Australia Mm. you can't exactly jump on Wikipedia or PubMed and find like you know the doses and the prescriptions and what you should be taking you you can't do that anywhere oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) there's my naiveness coming no and even if you did so I uh unpublished so I always have to be careful because I get so excited ah. about my research that oh. I just want to talk about it but um I did a massive so a systematic review so it's a very formal methodological approach to looking at a body of literature mm-hmm. um and so I did a systematic review on female anabolic androgenic steroid use mm-hmm. and what my whole question, I was like, I want to know who came up with these crazy things about them. <laughs> so it took me about a year and a half and I collected this massive body of literature and I started tracking the citations to be able mm. to learn like who said that they did this mm. and who first connected this side effect and mm. who said that this is, you know, incorrect. So I, you know, long story short and a review that will come out hopefully in the next year or so. Um, the state of knowledge is really based off of um, perceptions, but not data mm. of what androgens mm. do in the female body. And because androgens have been systematically opposed to the estrogens and the progesterones, progesterone kind of gets forgotten. I always call it like the redheaded stepchild of the sex hormones, if you had quotes. <laughs> that it kind of gets forgotten. It's always been about estrogen and progesterone or Mm. estrogen and testosterone and that's it. Um, But that because androgens are seen to be unnatural, again, big air quotes in the female body, just like estrogens are seen to be unnatural in the male body, Mm. that's changed our ideas about pharmaceuticals and who gets them and who doesn't. And that therefore um, in the 1940s, when it was 19 late 1930s, early 1940s, when androgens were being used incredibly dangerously in the female body in Mm. research, they were just going all in with the dosing, Mm. things that you would never do today um, because we know more. But back then they, they, you know, they did it and they decided that, hey, androgens are dangerous for women. Mm. Therefore, in the 1960s, when clinical ethics came around for research, they are like, you cannot research androgens in women because they are dangerous. Mm. Just like you cannot do research on exercise and pregnancy because it is dangerous. Mm. We now know that there's a lot more to that story, um, that the ethics boards were basing it on information that wasn't necessarily the best information. Mm. Um, so with women and so then the term I use, and it's, I, I, again, I try to use the, the best terms I can. So the class is androgenic steroids are anabolic androgenic steroids. Mm. Anabolic gets used because they're drugs that specifically have been associated with anabolism or muscle building, 
With that being said, listeners and viewers should know that progesterone and estrogen are also anabolic hormones. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I always, you know, screw with the meatheads when I give lectures to bodybuilding crowds going Mm -hmm. that like, these are anabolic too. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, so the anabolic androgenic steroid world, um, it, it contains drugs that are essentially used for performance and actually created a lot for performance reasons, Mm. but also include therapeutic drugs as well. So there are certain types of um, anabolic androgenic steroids that are used clinically. However, they're used clinically. They're not used for general populations. So the research Mm. that exists on them are very niche and very specific. When it comes to women, this includes things like um, post-menopausal, so menopause, is one year after the last menses. Um, and so postmenopausal would be the term really is menopausal, but like later on, let's say 70 years old mm-hmm. or so. So 70 year old women with osteoporosis that get given an anabolic androgenic steroid to help with bone density at a very low dose. Mm. That's what the type of research where we have for this for women. Uh, other research that we have is predating clinical ethics or is self-reported data. Yeah. yeah. As a researcher, I can tell you that self-reported data is not great data, especially in medicine. Why? Mm. It's hard to be objective about yourself. Yeah. And you're asking individuals to report on things that they don't actually know about. Mm, so then yeah. now you're creating ideas on things that you don't actually know about because your subjects didn't actually know about. Mm. Uh, and anabolic androgenic steroids is a great example because they often in research get called all one thing. And the diversity of anabolic androgenic steroids, the the sheer volume of them is no different than that massive umbrella I talked about with contraceptives. Mm. There are so many different forms that do different things, that act on different receptors, that have certain dosing and certain routes of entry and all of those influence how they are going to act in a body and whose body. Mm. An individual that is a uh, biologically female will have a different response than somebody who is born as a biological male. Mm. Somebody who's a biological female that has certain types of genetic abnormalities that alter the ways in which they metabolize uh, androgens and estrogens will have a different response Mm. to a drug, even at the same dose as somebody who doesn't. Somebody who has regular ovulatory menstrual cycles will respond differently to an anabolic androgenic steroid than somebody who does not. Oh, wow. Somebody who has high levels of adrenal androgens will have a different response than somebody who alternately does not. Mm. It is such a massive misunderstanding to think that all women will respond to a drug the same, just Mm. like not all men do. Mm. And the anabolic androgenic steroids that a lot of individuals deem as being like quote safer for women so the big ones that often get talked about in the fitness industry and performance world are things like oxandrolone or anabar mm. um or um stanzanol or winstrol mm. um these are things that clinically really for an, a young female in her reproductive prime there's no research on them Mm. So you're basing your experience off of perceptions of use. Mm. Um, And I say this as like a, as a clinical individual, 
like perceptions of use is all we have. Now mm. we can look at the drug pathways and that's what I get to do in my work is I actually look at like the nitty gritty. How is this drug interacting on the cellular level? But often in the fitness industry, what people are um, being exposed to the information is based off of perceptions and personal experience. Yeah. That's scary to me. Yeah. And that's even <laughs> if you're taking the right drug, right, Victoria? Like if, if you're Absolutely. buying stuff just, you know, from your coach, and online coach. Market. Yeah, you don't know what you're actually Absolutely. getting. And mm, I don't think yeah. in any context, like we would take a drug that we actually don't know the side effects of or the clinical trials or if they've gone yeah. through different things. It's it's very interesting to me because I think even with the contraception, like you understand like how complex things are in the human body and at what level they're interfering. So it's it's absolutely no different with steroids. But mm-hmm. I just think it's so prevalent in the fitness mm-hmm. space, but a lot of people actually don't know that. Like I have, um, like I've had some clients send me photos of like their favorite bikini competitor being like, I want body goals like this. And I'm like, oh, honey, like she's not natural, but to mm. us, it's so obvious. Right. But yeah. to the general population, it's not. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of the biggest users of androgens, like population cohorts are porn stars. Oh, mm-hmm. talk about that. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Wow. That's so naive. Like, oh, <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, you know, like there's a lot that we don't know and we don't talk about, but well, yeah. I think it went to the other thing is like, even how androgens work in the body, you're not going to suddenly take androgens and, you know, become a Miss Olympia. Mm. Uh, yeah, there are so many different elements that create an individual that is um, at the peak of the physique world. Mm-hmm. And some of these individuals might not be using recklessly. Some of them might be using recklessly. Some of them might be using recklessly, but not have any implications of it because what they have all the pieces that allow them to get through that a little bit safer than yeah. somebody who doesn't. And what I mean by that is like, there are so just like with, you know, contraceptives, there are so many different things that influence how these drugs work in the body. And if you don't know that and understand that, and if you're getting advice from somebody who doesn't know that and understand that, that's really freaking scary. That mm-hmm. is terrifying. Mm-hmm. That is, you are doing an experiment. And I think that's, again, another thing as a researcher, I try to get through to people is that like, Every time you go into the gym to start a program, let's say you're doing a program, it's based off of methodologically sound information about like how um, energy systems work and certain types of muscle fiber adaptations and different types of uh, even just like levers and the biomechanics of movement and everything else. Like you're going in and you're doing a program that is built on quote research, Mm. but it's still like an experiment that you're going into because that's not built on your body's research. Yeah. It's not taking all that into consideration. So now when we put that in context of drugs, what people are giving you is not built on mm. rigor. It's built on experience and it's built on hearsay a lot of times. And it's also built on misperceptions. Mm. Not every individual who takes um, an anabolic androgenic steroid will have implications, but many probably will. Because as you mentioned, they're not always what we think they are. They're also used for a variety of different purposes in ways that are the worst type of experiment possible. And that's 
you've got no control of variables and you're literally doing it in the most unsafe environment of being in a high stressed physiological environment of, you know, trying to say, get on a bikini stage. Mm -hmm. So you are in a caloric deficiency. You are having high levels of stress physiologically and also emotionally and socially. Mm -hmm. You're literally created a neurotransmitter deficiency and imbalance because of that. Um, You have high levels of neurological drive and output. You are probably also having an anovulatory cycle because of all the other, you know, implications of that. And now you're going to introduce a drug. Mm. That you don't know any drug. Any Mm. drug is scary, but now you're going to introduce a hormonal influencing agent. Mm. That's terrifying. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're not all like for a lot of women, they aren't knowledgeable about their reproductive cycle to begin with. Mm. And now they're taking something that's going to have an implication on reproduction. And now not all women like lose their ovulatory cycles on androgens when they're done in a safer environment, but many don't. And these drugs don't get taken on their own. Mm -hmm. They get taken in combination with many other enhancing agents that are, again, used sometimes in clinical use. Sometimes they're not. Um, Research chemicals are a whole nother world of their own. The peptides and and SARMs and that, those are all research-based. Now, the ones that are you know, using clinical world aren't used for the purpose that you're using them. So mm. let's say clenbuterol. Well, clenbuterol mm. isn't even used in clinical anymore in humans. Oh. Uh, but when it was, it was an it was an asthmatic drug. Mm. It wasn't being used for quote fat burning. Yeah. Um, you're using, uh, let's say, a thyroid hormone specifically, cytomel or T3, for fat burning. Mm. There's not research on that. It's actually you know a therapeutic use for hypothyroidism and it's actually not used that commonly in clinical research not that it shouldn't be but it doesn't get used as commonly as t4 um if you are also now dappling in like the world of diuretics well that also is not being used you know to help competitors get dry on the day of stage day like Mm -hmm. oh hell no Mm. like you're not having a bunch of people (laughs) sitting around researching that yeah. So yeah. you're taking these drugs under the guise mm. that people have actually studied them and personal experience is not the same. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of really brilliant people in the bodybuilding sphere. However, drugs are a different animal when it comes to uh, multi-drug use. So a lot of drugs being used at once. Also yeah. our users experience versus new and then uh, implications of sex also mm. does matter. Yeah. Um, and that sex, in my opinion, is a continuum. It's not a binary. Mm. There are many different versions of female, male, masculine, feminine. Mm. Uh, gender is super complicated in that story. We can talk about another day. But mm. all I'm saying to that is that what we perceive to be uh, a normal, quote, female response to a drug is not exactly black and white. Mm. it's incredibly complicated yeah Yeah. I think what a lot of people say as well Victoria is they go oh well 
you know, I'm not trying to have kids. I'll worry about it when I'm older. I'm just getting into stage shape now. And they don't think about the long-term impl- implications that may um, happen because yeah. of drug abuse. Oh, sorry. Drug abuse um, earlier in their, I guess, competing career. So like the, I know. The YOLO mentality. The YOLO yeah. mentality. And that's I'll like with recreational them. drugs. Or oh, any everything. Other, yeah. Yeah, we you live, kind of we live for now. Mm. But I guess that's a big motivator for everything that I do with my health yeah. and fitness in general I'm like I want to have kids one day I don't I don't want to risk like compromising my fertility Mm -hmm. like oral contraception could have been enough if I look back now but what are some of the long-term like health implications that we can see for women with like early drug abuse yeah lots of them Mm -hmm. um it's funny because I uh I always think when I do certain things or don't do certain things I am terrified to be that little like that stereotypical little old lady who's hunched over and shuffling across the street and then mm. the street light changes and she's still mid crosswalk <laughs> oh no and like already because the hunch and so when we talk about implications of drug use earlier on steroid use we've got to talk about bone density so yeah. when i talk about the hunch i don't mean that as like oh you just have bad posture no you have spine degeneration mm. plus postural imbalances that you developed early on in life and then you didn't fix because you felt like shit. Oh, um, mm. There are so many, like, it's all wrapped up. Fibromyalgia mm. for women, multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, dementia. These all have hormonal influences to them. Mm. Uh, certain types of stress-based disorders heart issues, digestive issues. Um, one of the emerging areas that, again, I've been following and super interested in is central sensitization syndrome, which is a cluster of numerous different um, kind of umbrella diagnoses, like all the way from TMJ to pelvic floor issues to nervous system issues to pain disorders, all wrapped up into this one umbrella that they're finding women in particular that are having like 13 different co-diagnoses at once. So they've just given it a name and I'm like, okay, well, why, what's at our root cause here? Often it is hormonal imbalances, Mm. whether the hormonal imbalance was the chicken or the egg. I don't know. I can't, you know, know, depend on the individual, but that prolonged imbalance of progesterone and estradiol gonadotropins androgens which then also influence our insulin levels and our blood glucose function our inflammation response our um, even histamine response our Mm. thyroid function our neurotransmitters Mm. vagal nerve muscle function itself nurseception and pain pathways god so everything massive is Mm. huge i mean estrogen um influences so estrogen's not bad we always have to think of hormones or even really anything as a bell curve you got highs on one side lows on the other but you have this lovely you in the middle Mm. and that you in the middle is not one point it's a you so there's Mm. more than one and you have highs and lows on the side of that too Nothing good comes from binaries. So high versus low. Mm. We don't want either. We want to live in the middle. Mm. 
And we should expect to live in the middle of that. There's going to be times in life that we're going to be in that optimal range, but there's also going to be times in life that we're going to be maybe floating on either side of not quite high, not quite low, but we just can't be there for too long. We got to go back up into that range level because it's not just one point. It's a range level of optimal. Yeah. Um, you know, because life happens, happens to all of us. It's just how long we let ourselves kind of be in a state of disarray with our hormones. Mm. That, that's what we have to worry about later on in life. So I think some of the things that I'm seeing in my um, consulting work right now and research is individuals, uh, female athletes in the fitness industry that have um, prolonged absence of menstruation without regular um, gynecological checkups. Mm. And so I'm seeing a thickened endometrial states because they're not schluffing their lining, mm. <laughs> um, which then creates uh, abnormal cells. I'm also seeing um, increase in uh, different types of follicular cysts, but then also, um, I mean, there's many different types of cysts. So also things like endometriomas, um, which then progress into endometriosis. Mm. Um, and that those endometriosis is related to higher levels of estrogen unopposed to progesterone. Mm. So estrogen and progesterone are like yin and yang, and you can still have a bleed without having an ovulatory cycle. And if you mm. don't have an ovulatory cycle and you're not creating progesterone, you can only have so many of those before you start to create an imbalance. So this lack of ovulation, which then in an environment where somebody is still creating estrogen really can turn into some bad things later on in life, like those endometriomas and endometriosis, which then the endometriosis creates that feedback loop of high levels of inflammation, high levels of estrogen, and it can spread. It's not mm. benign. Um, breast cancer rates are yet to be seen. And I'm really interesting, interested to see where this goes um, because a lot of those cells are both... Back, I'm back. Sorry, I was trying to make it a breast cancer. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so with breast cancer, it's also breast and uterine and ovarian and endometrium. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it is where we've got those large areas of uh, estrogen receptors, both alpha and betas, um, and that there's still like a lot of information on genetics, how that influences it, but then also states of high and states of low. And then also the levels between those states of highs and mm. lows, how many cycles somebody has. So it is this emerging, emerging world. Yeah. I'm all about risk management. So I go like, so if this is an emerging world of research, where am I the safest? Mm. I'm the safest in the middle. Yeah. Not being in a state of chronically high hormones and not being a state of low hormones. If you take an androgen, you open yourself up. I mean, you're desiring a hyperandrogenic state. That mm-hmm. is your entire objective of taking it. Yeah. Entire, so you are inducing a medical issue. You are mm-hmm. inducing hyperandrogenism mm. and hoping to do it safe enough that you don't get all of the unintended effects of taking an androgen that also mirror the symptoms of hyperandrogenism, which yeah. is hair growth, um, mood and uh, like anxiety and both depression disturbances. So mental illness, um, 
which I, I don't use that term lightly. So let's just go to anxiety and depression scores. Yeah. Um, hair, secondary hair loss, voice changes, uh, increased um, clitoral stimulation, which can go down after use or once levels subside. But then you also have like things to do with your labia. Mm-hmm. Nobody talks about like, yeah, estrogen. We've all heard it sort of all those yeah, things that kind of put you the, off. Uh, the mm. elongated labia, mm. uh, vaginal dryness, which yeah. is also from a hypoestrogen state. Um, there's also a greater affinity for things like insulin resistance, uh, yeah. hypothyroidism. Uh, cholesterol issues, gallbladder issues. I can go on and on and on. High blood pressure, like (laughs) sleep apnea. Um, Like sleep apnea is such a fascinating one for me because it's like androgens cause your vocal. So one of the reasons why people's voice changes when they're on androgens is not necessarily all about androgens binding in your vocal cord. It's actually that your vocal cord gets stiff and hypertonic. So hyperflexed it loses its flexibility and it becomes rigid. Mm. And when it becomes rigid, you don't, when we think about sound waves and vibration, you don't get the same vibrato. Yeah. And that same thing happens in extreme hypothyroidism, Mm. Cushing's disease. So when cortisol gets really, really high Mm. and other types of even drug induced. So when somebody's on high levels of corticosteroids, prednisone, their voice drops because Mm. it gets that rigid state. Mm-hmm. Some people can train that. Some people can't. Yeah. So that's one thing that often you don't know until it's too late. Yeah. That's the scary thing, I suppose. I mean, we've spent, you know, the past time talking about the health implications and all of that, but it would be naive to think that people are going to stop taking them and that's fine. But mm-hmm. how can one do it safely? Like yeah. if be healthy <laughs> if- first. Yep. Yeah. Be, what be would one look first. for in their own body? Yeah. And, and well, I think that's the same for competing. Um, you know, if I mm. in a, a, competing, traveling the world, having kids, entering a high stress career, whatever it might be, be healthy. Mm. We all want right now in the world, these extraordinary lives. And by doing so, we fail to get our shit covered at the basic level the basic mm. fundamentals of being a good human being <laughs> so true so true <laughs> oh far out we just want to be happy individuals and so yeah. we're looking in the wrong holes yeah and we you know we're not sleeping we're not having positive social relationships we're not having regular bowel movements we're not understanding and listening to hunger cues we're not nourishing our body we're not having gratitude and uh, the natural endorphin rushes, rushes we should get from things other than just exercise. Yeah, We're not moving and moving our body in yeah. a way that is going to create not only the muscular environment, but the neuro environment, the uh, ligament and joint environment, the motor pathways for later on in life. Mm. We're st- mm. all wanting to like be superhuman because we're taught that this is not like that is a- average is being able to, you know, just go to the bathroom every day. And I'm like, this is fundamental. This is what yeah. you should be doing. So you want to learn how to like do these things and be an extraordinary human being safer, get your basics covered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So true. It and was I- like, like people come to me and they want me to say these grand things. And I'm like, I don't 
there, there's nothing, there's nothing more than just this fundamentals. You got to get covered. Mm. Yep. And I think it comes back down mm. to as well, like everyone does want just that quick fix and that pill. And even like with the contraception, mm. like it's so much yeah. easier just to prescribe something or take something to get a result yeah. rather than dealing yeah. with the underlying issues that are going on. And I think yeah. as well, like a main theme that I'm sort of picking up on is just like informed consent about everything that you're doing and everything yeah. you're taking and understanding the risks um, that come with it for the perceived benefit that you think you're going to get. And like you said, mm, the right absolutely. tool for the right job. Yeah. Because there's other forms of contraceptive that are non-hormonal. Mm. There are other forms of non-invasive contraceptives. FAM is a badass method. Yeah. I love FAM because not only are you being able to like understand contraceptive, uh, and, and how to do that in a way that really requires nothing more than a temperature and thermometer Mm. but you're also getting the dual benefit of knowing whether or not you ovulate yeah so we get two birds with one stone Mm. and by knowing that you're ovulating as a young female you are now being able to be proactive in the reproductive aging experience Mm. you're now being proactive in your fertility experience in terms of because we know we're talking about anti-fertility but a lot of people are anti-fertility until they want kids and then they're pro-fertility. Yeah. Um, yeah, true. And so you've got to <laughs> so understand true. that <laughs> yeah. along the way, just like, you know, mm. everybody is okay with having amenorrhea until they come to me and they're like, I want my period back. I feel like less of a person because I don't have my period. And I'm like, you know, like, let's do what we can, but you've yeah. been, have a ha- you've had an absence of menses for five years. It's going to take time. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to take time. And I think one of the other big things is that like, these aren't they're the 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 basic entry way into like being a good human being is not things that are extraordinary. They mm-hmm. are the simple fundamentals that then we have yeah. for life. And then we build upon. And if we also understand like, the, the science of sleep, the science of breathing, mm-hmm. all of these things that we kind of throw to the side and go like, Ugh. not a big deal. It's like, no, actually over time, these add up and Mm. have consequences when we don't do them. Therefore we need to do them and have them as our baseline to build upon. I mean, one of the the things with competing that I would used to always say to the individuals that I trained was like, if you didn't sleep, you're not getting up and doing more in fasted cardio. Mm. Like you're literally Mm. doing the opposite at that time exactly you're having more damage I, I talked to an athlete mm. the other day um that i so i don't work with people for like coaching them to get to i'm usually one of like the accessories on their uh like an integrated team cool. so i had this one athlete who has um a back issue and she's a power lifter and i just said to her like look you might you know how to deadlift so why are you going in and antagonizing your back every week for the next six weeks leading into your comp you know how to deadlift you're not really going to build that much strength in the next six weeks if you're injured you're actually going to be doing the opposite Mm. so chill the fuck out Mm. put more emphasis on recovery and then at two weeks out revisit the topic and decide whether or not you need to do it yeah yeah it's so true we have such a twisted idea of what it means to pursue performance we can't pursue performance at a high level unless it's safely and sustainably 
unless we have these basic fundamentals covered. So when it comes down to whether we're talking about birth control use, whether we're talking about steroid use or anabolic use or whatever, it's the safest way is to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it and the potential implications not only for today, but for tomorrow, because who you are today is not who you're going to be tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So understand that, get yourself healthy. Mm. Even if you're on, get yourself as healthy as you can be while you're on. So like I mentioned, the basic fundamentals, breathing, mindfulness, uh, dealing with your traumas and your demons do it now because they get you later on in life if you don't Mm. um working on imbalances like with movement patterns and things like that making sure you're nourishing your body making sure that you are sleeping that you are having fulfillment positive social relationships making sure that you are um being able to go to the bathroom big one if you have something that is like a glaring thing like your body tells you when something's not okay yeah so acne or skin texture or dry mouth or post nasal drip work on those things that's your body telling you that something's not right and sometimes yes they might be idiopathic meaning that there's really no one for sure thing but if you're doing all that you can to help it, then rest in that. That could Mm. just be you. But you can't say that's just me Mm. unless you've done those things. Like I've worked with so many people over the years that are like, yeah, I can't breathe out of one nostril. And I'm like, (laughs) what? (laughs) This is okay. Mm. Like Mm. you want to take gear, but you can't, you're performing at a high level with only one nostril working like can you imagine what you're going to be if you have two yeah 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 there's a lot of like you know a lot of the one percenters that I feel like Danny we always talk about I'm like sunlight is not a one percenter like these are fundamentals that we need to be like looking Mm -hmm. after to function optimally and I think as well like whenever we try to like hack the body as we've sort of talked about and get like a um, a high or a low it's going to respond because it does want to keep that homeostasis in the middle Mm -hmm. and it's always going to come back so you just have to make sure that the risk that you're taking is worth the reward and Mm -hmm. I love what you were saying there Victoria about like you know looking after your connections looking after your overall health your wellness Mm. like your digestion like your sleep quality like all those sorts of things are so important because at the end of the day if we can feel successful and accomplished in what we're doing like it's going to impact why we're doing it as well and perhaps Mm. the risk that we're willing to take oh absolutely because if you know why you're doing something And you know that you're doing all that you can to support it. And that decision is for you, by you. Yeah. Even if it goes self, you can rest in knowing you did the best you could. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people get the, like the remorse and regret because they didn't do. And they know that, Mm. that they didn't do all that they could do to take care of their bodies. Mm. Or they didn't listen to the warning signs that something wasn't okay. Mm. Or they tried to ignore um, the fundamentals in the pursuit of high performance. And then, you know, I I always think about athletes that have forced retirement 
if you don't have anything else in your life than you being an athlete, what happens the day that that gets taken away from you? Yeah. You have now just opened that door up to depression. And maybe it was the way I was raised, but I was always raised like you have plan A and you plan B. And then you have plan C, D, all the way to Z, all the way to double A, back to double Z. <laughs> yeah. Like you, it, yes, the pursuit of high performance almost always requires mono, like a mono vision, mono focus, but you cannot be on that train unless you have your supports in place. Mm. Yeah. You do so not true. go on a trip without your luggage. You do not go on a trip without your ticket. You do not go on your trip without knowing where you're going. Mm-hmm. And for most athletes, where they're going is like, I call it the, like the bad milk phenomenon where it's literally at, so, you know, you've bad milk in the fridge, you throw it out. That's what happens to an athlete that hurts themselves or has something happened to them. Their coach mm-hmm. or their career, their pursuit throws them out. They throw them to the wayside. Mm-hmm. That's cool. where you're going. Cause the it's high true. performance is an inevitably performance inhibiting it's health inhibiting. Mm-hmm. There is nothing healthy about high performance because you're pursuing exceptional physiological pursuit that comes with consequence. Mm. Just like if I were to go like, you know, is stock market. If I were to go and say, I'm going to invest all of my savings into the stock market. That's a risk. Mm. That's a gamble. Mm. That's high performance. That's high stakes investing. High stakes investing, high performance. It's a gamble. It is a pursuit. Mm. Mm. And at the end of the day, it's not just about you. And that's also what like kills me about a lot of these athletes is they go like, you know, I'm going to make it to the O by the time that I'm 24, I'm going to be a young bikini pro and I'm going all in to do that. And I'm like, it's not just about you. Mm. You can show up looking in the best shape and they still might not give you a nod because they don't know who you are. Yeah. Or the politics of the industry. It's not just about you. There are Mm. 52 other women up on the O stage that day. Mm. And how many other thousands around the world that are at a national level, an international level, let alone the amateur level. And you just started training. Mm. Yeah. Like let's reality check our clients. Yeah. It's not being cruel. It's not crushing dreams. It's probably the most honest thing you can do as a coach. Yeah. Because not all of us have what it takes to compete and Mm. bodybuilding, powerlifting, O-lifting, CrossFit. These are all things you enter at an adult age. Mm. They're not early sport specialization. That says a lot about it. Guess what's allowing you entry into the sport? Money. Mm. Very true. You're buying your way in. Therefore, they're going to want everybody to be involved. But just because everybody can be involved does not mean that they should be involved. Mm, Because for some people, competing is not healthy. It's not healthy socially, mentally, emotionally, physically. Mm -hmm. And that what it takes to get on stage is not maybe the best for you. Yeah. And that's okay. You just then need to know that, hey, like, you know, I always go back to myself as an example. I tried. I tried for 10 years to compete. I was coaching people at the elite, like Arnold Olympia level, and I'd still not stepped on stage, but I tried my damnedest Mm. so many freaking times. Why? It wasn't because I was lazy. It wasn't because I was 
eating my meals, hiding in a closet somewhere. It wasn't because I wasn't putting in the work. Physiologically, what it took, I did not have. Full stop. Yep. And my I think body. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you're going to continue. I was going to say my body, the way that, you know, I am what happened to me in my teenage years, what I was born into is not aligned with the sport of bodybuilding. Mm. Plus, you've got to put that in context. I was going to school at the, you know, undergraduate master's level. I was working almost full time. I was pursuing a career in the fitness industry simultaneously. I was writing. I was taking care of my own health. I was coaching clients. I was also dealing with like my family is one of my whys. It's one of my main reasons. Mm -hmm. So that what was required not only was not feasible. I didn't have enough time in the day, you know, six hours of cardio. But then even if I did those six hours of cardio, guess what? It wasn't going to get me to where I needed to be. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it, wow. it, we're so, we're so, God, I just feel like you hit the nail on so many different heads there. Not just feel, I'm like, I've got no words, but yeah, it's, we're so open and saying it's not for everyone. In fact, it's not for most people because when you are like so driven, those other things have to go, you know, you're not having the best sex with your partner. You're not in great relationships. Your work suffers. You don't have time. You're very, very mm-hmm. focused. And of course, if you feel like you've only got one thing, you are willing to take those risks. If you can't see the other things that you might be impacting too, or the long-term consequences, you're like, mm-hmm. yep, I'll do whatever it takes, which is what mm-hmm. most people do. And to me as well, I'm like, when I watch that, and as you mentioned, like people going through post, you know, post-comp blues, like it's explaining like it's normal and all these sorts of things and that depression depression that comes mm-hmm. with it it's mm-hmm. sort of like it shouldn't be it absolutely shouldn't mm-hmm. be normalized as something everyone goes mm-hmm. through we have mm-hmm. to have these other facets in our life that we also yeah. deem as very valuable because we're not just com- mm-hmm. bikini to be- sorry we're not just bikini competitors mm-hmm. and yeah. I think as well like this last 12 months has shown so many people that and I think it's been like a reality check to mm-hmm. be like what else do you have going on in your life at the moment and what so happens true. when there's yeah. no shows yeah. yeah. And do you even enjoy working out? Mm. Yeah. The I think real the ones pandemic, show up now. Yeah. I think the pandemic really helped to illuminate that. Like yeah. I haven't been in a gym since February, 2020. Wow. Wow. There you go. Yep. I have worked yep. out. Yes. In my garage. Yep. With my most shabby chic DIY pulley system and squat <laughs> mm. rack that like my uncle welded to the wall because I can't do overhead presses enough. My bar is 15 pounds. Yeah. Mm. You can't load a lot of weight on it. Mm. And I still have shown up. And when I haven't yeah. wanted to, because emotionally the world felt too heavy, I didn't. That's so good. That's okay. Yeah. That's Important. okay. That does not define me. Mm. I define me. Yeah. Not what I do. And I think that like, you know, the argument could be made that anything, whether we're talking about the industry or athletic endeavors or any type of high performance, like being a neurosurgeon has an expiry date. If you're going to be healthy, Mm. there's a reason why, you know, certain types of careers aren't 25 years. They might only be five or 10 Mm, mm. being a PhD student. I wish I knew how mentally damning it was before I got in. Mm. 
I mean, the suicide rates in PhD students is astronomical Mm. because it's such a toxic environment. It's a pursuit of high performance. It requires everything. And unless you're willing to push back and take a career, like I chose, like I'm going to finish a PhD, but I'm never going to be able to be in academia Mm. because I've gone the healthy way, which is not what's required for me to be in academia. Yeah. And that's a choice though that I made. So I rest in that. You know, we talked about choices. I face that one head on. Um, and I and I do think in our industry too, we're about building bodies. We're not about building minds mm. or resilient mental health. And that there are so many individuals that I've worked with over the years that have so much big capital T trauma and micro trauma that's unresolved and they don't recognize the physiological implications of that because we perceive that if it's in our mental health, if it's in our brain, it stays there. Mm. And, you know, trauma is somatic. It's everywhere. Mm. Mm. Um, There's amazing, amazing work on this. Um, Body keeps score by um, uh, he's Norwegian um, or Danish. Scandinavian of some sorts, I believe. Um, <laughs> one of. Yeah, European researcher, maybe I, one of those. But anyway, Bessel Vander, something I forget the last name. And people are, if they listen to this, are probably going to like hate on me for fitting, forgetting that because I hate uh. when people do that and I listen. But um, excellent, excellent book. Uh, Gabor Mate, he is another researcher that's done excellent work on trauma, um, talking about that it is a somatic experience. So, yeah, mm. sure. Your ovarian dysfunction can cause menstrual issues. Mm. So can adrenal issues. So can pituitary issues, but so can trauma. Yeah. Some of the most interesting work that I always explain to my clients is that people always go, oh, you know, menstrual issues that are related to eating disorders have to do with calories and energy. And I'm like, no, they Mm. don't. It is not, we are not some type of lovely energetic ball of calories in, calories out. That is not, no. Menstrual cycle, nah. (laughs) So many other things. Okay, but off that tangent, they've done research showing that dissatisfaction with the way that you look, not dieting or not taking exercise interventions, just dissatisfaction with the way that you look relates to higher levels of anovulatory menstrual cycles. Mm. You induce emotional and mental stress, which causes, because we're not chickens, we can't cut our heads off, physiological stress. You create Mm. a stress response because whether it's coming from a car accident with you breaking, you know, bones or uh, you standing on the scale and not liking the number, you create a stress response. Mm. And that stress response over time creates those adaptations and maladaptations. And one of them is that swing with our adrenaline, the swing with our stress hormones, and the absence of an ovulatory cycle as a result. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So when people go to me like, oh, no, my body image is fine. And I'm going like, you're a competitor. You're standing up getting your self-judged in bikini Mm. that takes a certain type of person and often there are some 
trauma is involved. Not everybody, mm. but often there is. Mm. And often if there wasn't at the beginning, there is now. And also those that get forced away from the stage because their body rebels against them. Mm. That's hard. That is a hard mm. place to be. To think that you had control over something that you actually don't, you can't face that alone. Yeah. And that, if you're looking at getting your cycle back, it's going to prolong the whole process. Mm. And that's what you've definitely taught us today amongst many, many things. It's been an incredible two hours. So we we do want to thank you uh, for your time and all of your knowledge, but you've really sort of shown us to just get help. And as you said, you know, don't stop until you get those answers and realize that we are individuals and there's not a one size fits all approach to anything, whether it be contraception, whether it be PEDs, um, you know, getting on stage. It's It's been really empowering to sit here with you this time and and really yeah realize that we can be in control of things like we don't have to do it on our own there is help so I think that's it's just been amazing and I just want to thank you we can talk to you for hours and hours but we are mindful of your time so thank you so much (laughs) absolutely I love what you just said about control because that's Mm. one thing that I have had to learn the hard way um having chronic illness is that, um, and it's, and I learned though, through also understanding with the more professional knowledge is it's not just chronic illness. It's all of us. Mm. None of us have control over the human body. Nobody does. We'd be a fool to think that we know all there is to it. It is like space. We know so little about Mm. so much and knowledge is always moving and fluctuating. And even if we knew everything there was to do with it, we still don't have control. We have so many, yes, we are a human being, but all these things inside us are also living, functioning cells that are turning over and they have their own life cycles and everything else in mind, <clears throat> minds of their own. Mm. So we don't have control over it. Mm. And learning to relinquish that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done, but one of the most important things. Mm. And in an industry that we try to always have control over that. It is a very important lesson, I think, to becoming a healthy competitor or a healthy athlete um, is to be able to nourish, not control. Mm. You can't beat your body into submission. Mm. So you got to meet it where it is. And often that is through gratitude and compassion and acceptance. Yeah. God, I, I love that. And I just think as well, like your story is incredible, Victoria, and you can really hear that in it. Like a lot of what we do is driven through what we've been through in the past and you can really hear that and it's obviously what's driving all your research and commitment to your phd and your studies to be able to put this message out into the world of like you said there's so much to consider and we don't know it all so trying to control everything and dictate everything out of this sense of control that we need to have like a you know a holistic approach to anyways it's sort of going backwards but Danny and I appreciate you spending the time to come on and chat with us um, and share your level of expertise with um, our audience as well. So where can they find out more information about you or follow you on social media? They can follow me on social media, but it hasn't been <laughs> updated in a very long time. And what has been, God bless my best friend who posts for me. I like to send her one. So if you send me a message on social media, I haven't seen it since June, 2020. <laughs> um, 
so and she drew the line at that she was like I cannot look in your inbox it is terrifying. oh no yeah, <laughs> would be. um I'm preparing for the day that one that I'll go back but today is not that day so <laughs> uh the best way to reach me is on email um mm. so it's through my website which is just victoriafelker.com um and that also has like resources and podcasts mm. and other stuff it's not up to date though i've been so into my own like writing right now that it's not been updated either mm-hmm. but if you search me on google you'll probably get all the podcasts that i've been yeah. on over the last like two years but all the other ones from before that are on my website um and all the videos and everything else so brilliant it's, it's its own little resource but on social media please follow me so when i come back i'm not completely <laughs> alone um, that'd be cool yeah for sure and you know what an incredible like resource library to be able to have on your own website as well I'm sure there's so much more and we would love to have you back on the podcast to be able to go into some more of this sort of stuff because there is so much skimmed oh I know how much deeper I'm excited Mm. but thank you so much again for coming on and if you did enjoy this episode please do take a screenshot and tag Victoria and the level up podcast on your Instagram